0: In the remote, rocky, and mountainous countryside of Britain sits a 13th-century fortress called Powys Castle. There are a lot of medieval castles and fortresses scattered across the European continent, so it's not the presence of the castle itself which is remarkable, but rather the contents held within. As the historian William Dalrymple describes, Powys is simply awash with loot from India, room after room of imperial plunder extracted by the British East India Company in the 18th century. There are more Mughal artifacts stacked in its private house in the Welsh countryside than are on display in any one place in India, including the National Museum in Delhi. The riches include hookahs of burnished gold inlaid with empurpled ebony, superbly inscribed spinals and jeweled daggers, gleaming rubies the color of pigeon's blood, and scatterings of lizard green emeralds. There are tiger's heads set with sapphires and yellow topaz, ornaments of jade and ivory, silken hangings embroidered with poppies and lotuses, and statues of Hindu gods and coats of elephant armor. How did such a vast array of the riches of India come to be displayed in a remote castle in Britain? The answer explains why the British Museum in London is stuffed full of the treasures of West Africa, why the French and Belgian soccer teams are full of players of African descent, why so many Americans go to Hawaii for vacation, and why our bananas are so cheap. In the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, the advances of the Industrial Revolution allowed the nations of Western Europe, and later the United States and Japan, to project their power and influence over more of the globe than most would have ever thought possible. This new wave of imperialism would dramatically reshape the continents of Asia and Africa, as well as give birth to a wide range of evil philosophies that imperialists would utilize to justify their plunder. So The story of imperialism is way too vast to be told well in one short podcast, so we're going to focus on the how, the why, and review a few key key case studies. I highly recommend re-watching John Green's Crash Course video as a supplement to this podcast, as he does a great job of encapsulating a lot of the key points. So again, that'd definitely be a good thing for you to refer back to as well. So first, the how. Back in period two, so 1450 to 1750, Europeans were pretty successful in their attempted conquests of lands in the Americas. The combination of steel weapons, gunpowder, horses, and well above all else, disease proved overwhelming against American opposition. However, Europeans were much less successful in their attempts to conquer the people of Africa and Asia. In these lands, Europeans had no discernible technological advantage, and they died frequently from disease themselves. Uh, they also faced opposition from powerful states and empires. So you want to think about the Mughal Empire, uh, Osei-Tutu, and Queen Njinga. So they're facing a lot of really strong opposition. Thus, Europeans were only able to establish a few strategically located trading posts along the coasts of Africa and Asia and throughout the Indian Ocean. But in the middle of the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution began to change everything. And all of a sudden, the nations of Western Europe possessed the tools to renew their imperial ambitions. Steamboats and later railways allowed them to move more easily beyond coastal areas of Africa and Asia, and new medicines like quinine gave them increased protection against disease. New military weapons, such as the breech-loading rifle and later the Maxim machine gun, gave Europeans unprecedented military power. So there's your how. Now let's look at the why. The most obvious answer is resources. African and Asian lands possessed a huge variety of natural resources, including but definitely not limited to cotton, spices, timber, ivory, rubber, palm oil, tea, salt, cobalt, gold, diamonds, the list goes on. Many of these resources were crucial in assisting industrial production back in Europe. Additionally, rising nationalism played a big role. Countries sought to collect colonies as a way of asserting their nation's greatness, and colonial conquests were generally very popular with the public. Who can ever forget the uh, British children's book that stated, Sea is for Colonies, rightly we boast that of all the great nations, Great Britain has most. As conquest continued, Europeans sought to justify imperialism with bogus fake scientific philosophy, such as social Darwinism which basically stated that nature dictated that industrialized nations were naturally destined to conquer non-industrialized ones. Europeans also spoke of a civilizing mission, basically that it was their duty to bring European Christian ways to more quote-unquote undeveloped people of the world. This idea is best encapsulated by the British writer Rudyard Kipling, who's most well-known for writing The Jungle Book, uh, but he wrote a famous poem called The White Man's Burden, Uh, And in this poem, he urges the United States, an ascendant imperial power, to assume colonial control over the Philippines. So this is a strange concept when one considers that many of the societies suffering from imperial conquerors had long and distinguished histories of scientific, mathematic, literary, and other forms of cultural development. But again, that's why we call it a bogus theory, because it's fake. Imperialism took many forms. The aforementioned British conquest of India was carried out over a period of over a century and mostly not by the British government, but rather the British East India Company, a joint stock company which built up its own private army in India. Eventually, rampant misgovernment by the company led to a huge revolt, and the British government took control and established the British Raj, or the British rule, in India, which would last until 1947. 1947. Similarly, the Dutch East India Company colonized Indonesia and other regions in Southeast Asia before finally ceding control to the government of the Netherlands. Imperialism in Africa began to occur a bit later than it did in Asia, but when it did, it happened at a tremendous pace. The Berlin Conference of 1885, to which no Africans were invited, led to the disgustingly titled Scramble for Africa, in which almost all of Africa was colonized. Perhaps the most brutal case was that of the Congo, where Belgium's King Leopold established a vast personal colony that was essentially made into a giant rubber plantation. Congolese were forced to tap rubber, and often horribly maimed when they failed to meet quotas. Up to 10 million Congolese people died under Leopold's rule, resulting in control of the colony being transferred to the Belgian government, which really wasn't all that much better. Similar atrocities were committed by the Germans against the Herero people of modern-day Namibia in southern Africa, and the British, French, and Italian governments were certainly not known for their benevolence towards their colonial subjects in Africa either. We would be remiss if we did not mention the case of China in this podcast. China, for centuries and centuries among the world's largest, most advanced, and prosperous societies, was never directly taken over. But China had not industrialized in the way that Western Europe had, and its one-sided defeat to the British in the Opium Wars led to the signing of the first of many unequal treaties, giving Britain unprecedented economic power in China. China was soon forced to sign similar treaties with other industrialized nations, ushering in many decades of humiliation and chaos. The Taiping Rebellion and Boxer Rebellion dramatically weakened the Qing Dynasty, and by 1911 it collapsed, ending 2,000 years of dynastic rule in China. Imperialism was also accomplished through economic means. Countries attempting to industrialize would often borrow huge sums of money from those who had already industrialized, leaving them greatly in debt and at the mercy of the lenders. This was the case with Egypt. And by the 1880s, Egypt was basically under Britain's economic control. This kind of business imperialism was also exercised outside of Africa and Asia, particularly with the developing nations of Latin America. And So that's important to point out is that even though most of this new imperialism is happening in Africa and Asia, there is still imperialism happening in other parts of the world as well, so particularly Latin America. British and American businesses invested heavily in Latin American nations and came to exercise a great deal of economic control there. So we don't want to forget about our huge transnational corporations that are becoming increasingly influential during this time period. And so in this part of the world, we're going to see like United Fruit and Dole uh, increasingly having a huge amount of economic power uh, in these developing parts of the Americas. When these nations tried to push back against foreign business investment, the big guns came out. The United States was particularly good at doing this in Central and South America, repeatedly intervening militarily in these regions in the early 20th century to make them, quote unquote, safe for American business. So this gives me a chance to, chance to insert... A quote that I think really, really does a a good job of giving us a sense of this business imperialism and summing up the extent to which countries like the United States and Britain were willing to go to protect their business interests. Uh, So this quote is from the very interestingly named uh, general of the U.S. Marines, Smedley Butler. And Smedley Butler was one of the most decorated soldiers in American history. Later in life, Butler summed up his military career thusly. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer. A gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long, I helped purify Nicaragua for the international banking house of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see to it that the Standard Oil Company went its way unmolested. During those years, I had, as the boys in the back room would say, a swell racket. Looking back on it, I feel that I could have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was to operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. As a result of this economic imperialism, many regions in Africa, Asia, and Latin America developed export economies which were dependent on the sale of valuable natural resources and raw materials to more industrialized lands. These regions were then dependent on buying more expensive finished goods that had been made with these resources, which only served to continue the cycle of economic dependency. So we could go on and on indefinitely about imperialism. Um, This is a huge topic, but I'm going to end with this. It's really important to understand that people around the world did not simply give in to imperialism. Rather, they fought back quite fiercely. As John Green states, imperialism involved a lot of fighting and a lot of dying. Colonized people worked tirelessly to resist oppression, and eventually they would succeed although not for a much longer period of time than most could rightfully hope for. By understanding this dark chapter of human history, you're going to be much better equipped to understand the major developments of the 20th century in period four. Stay safe. See you soon.